Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry, and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green, and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This episode details the fundamentals of Bitcoin, its history, what it is and why it's important, why it has value and how it's different from other crypto assets, why self-custody is important, what Bitcoin culture is and where it's going. These questions are thoroughly answered by Andrew Howard at Bitcoin Reserve, who also tells me about that business, addresses Bitcoin's main criticisms and considers the future of the asset. So I have this week dialing in from Mexico, the Chief Business Development Officer at Bitcoin Reserve, an over-the-counter Bitcoin service. It's Andrew Howard. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we met each other in lockdown over an app called Lunch Club, purely because we both put down Bitcoin and crypto as interests. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty funny how the internet connects so many people, um, especially during that time, too. So. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we've sort of kept in contact the last sort of like year and a half, two years. And look, the reason I wanted to have you on here is because you have this incredible story from a guy who was in the military to now what I think is probably best described as uh, a Bitcoin maximalist. Do you think that's fair? Uh, you could call it Bitcoin maximalist. Yeah, I'm okay with that association. <laughs> um, yeah, awesome. I, I just think it's worth, and, and I think this is the, the first question really, is just like, Tell me about your background. Like you were in the Marines and now you live in Mexico. Like what's the story here? Yeah. What's the story? So, okay. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles, um, born and raised, grew up there and joined the Marine Corps at 17 years old, um, served three years active duty in the Marine Corps, was stationed at uh, Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California. Um, and during my time in the Marine Corps, I started reading about Austrian economics and uh, the history of money, um, what properties make it, you know, money good, a certain kind of money, you know, of high quality. And, uh, and then I found out about Bitcoin, which uh, largely shaped my worldview. Um, finding out about Bitcoin uh, was, you know, I, I had studied Again, the history of money, I had realized that the money that we use today, which is known as fiat currency, is inherently broken and causes, you know, historically proven to cause many societal issues. And that when society has a money that's based off of gold, something scarce, um, you know, you, you have a lot more prosperity. And learning about Bitcoin was just the next evolution of that step. Uh, I just went, oh my gosh, wow, this is, this is a, a very big deal. Um, it's basically perfect money, uh, designed to be perfect money. It's the money of the internet, as Jack Dorsey has called it. Jack Dorsey is the founder of Twitter. He calls Bitcoin the native currency of the internet. Um, and then after that, i uh, just been very interested in Bitcoin ever since. So that was in 2017. Um, I have held on to the thing through several crashes. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. 2017, the price went yeah. from basically like $1,000 to $20,000 and then back down to $3,000. But if you believe in the infrastructure, right, then it doesn't really matter. That's the point. And I guess we'll come on to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, once you study it more, 
the more confidence you have in it. That's generally the case with people. And just to contextualize for people. So I met Andrew, as I said, online. And I said, this guy's gone from basically a loyalty to uh, a government where he's fighting, putting his life on the line, to someone who's actually, um, when you look at it, investing in uh, anti-establishment money. So I said to him, what is it that changed your mind? What Was there any publications? Was there any books? I mean, you tell me, Andrew, do you remember, remember our conversation? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I would start off by, I wouldn't call it anti-establishment, more so Bitcoin is... So in order to understand Bitcoin, you need to understand what money is. And I, I'm pro you know, establishment in the sense of the word that I want society to have an order to it. Um, I want to have peace. I want human beings to prosper as much as possible. And you know, if, if you think in terms of having an established society, an establishment, fiat currency breaks society. It, it uh, makes the poor poor, it makes the rich richer. Um, it, it, I mean, we can get into the reasons of why fiat currency is inherently bad. I'm definitely going to ask some questions about Bitcoin because the audience here is nece not necessarily people who understand it yet. So I want, and I think you're probably one of the best people positioned to talk about it, is to just go through some of the fundamentals, if that's all right with you. Now, just to make people aware, I actually sent Andrew a quick list of, of questions. So I'm sure he can do it off the top of his head anyway. But um, it's, it's worth just going through some of these sort of more basic principles. So, and bearing in mind, Bitcoin Reserve has a 21 page uh, sort of pamphlet, which details, I think, everything that Andrew's going to talk about. I've had a look at it. It's really good. It's like a history of what's happened and why it's important. But I think for the purposes of this recording, um, I think we just better start with what is Bitcoin and why does it have value? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, just regarding that book real quick, it's called Why and How Bitcoin, Everything You Need to Know in 21 Pages. Um, so maybe we should awesome. provide a link to that underneath in, in the info Absolutely. Uh, to this video. People want to get more of a, an overview on it. But okay, so what is Bitcoin? Um, <laughs> I, I would like to talk about what is money. Like I mentioned, yeah, I mean, in, in order to understand Bitcoin, you need to understand what money is. So money is generally three things. It's a, it's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a unit of account. So you account for the price of things in it. Um, and money has taken on many forms throughout history. We've had, obviously, gold, uh, silver. We've had you know big, giant rocks be used as money. We've had tobacco be used as money. Um, we've had many different things function as money. And historically, the best thing that's functioned as money is gold. Yeah. Okay. And the reason why gold has functioned so well as money is because it is very, very scarce. It's very difficult to produce. Gold doesn't just grow on trees. Gold has to be mined. You have to put a lot of work into it. Um, so, you know, naturally it, 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 cause people to hang on to it because it can't be easily produced. Uh, and, you know, from there you, you have people trading in it because everybody values it uh, because it's, it's, it's rare, it's scarce. So you have people exchanging in it. And then eventually you have things being denominated in that monetary unit. Um, so uh, that's that's what money is. I'll just say the three again: store of value, medium exchange, unit of account. As far as what what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is decentralized digital money. 
Okay, so I'm gonna just take a step back here and let's play, play pretend, for example. Let's pretend that there has been a monopoly on the production of cars, okay? There's one company, this one company owns all production of cars. What would, what would we have under that, that case? We have something that everybody basically needs and uses, right? And you would have a very poor quality of car, most likely because the company would have no incentive to produce something better. You'd have horrible uh, customer service. The car wouldn't last a long time. It would, be, it would just be a bad product because there's no incentive to produce a better product by a competitor. Okay. The reason I bring that up is that is literally the state of money as human beings have known it for thousands of years. <laughs> money has been completely, completely monopolized by uh, governments. And inevitably, you're going to have a, a bad form of money. So Bitcoin separates money from state. Okay. If you think about the separation of church and state and how much of a profound impact that that had on society. The separation of money in, st in state is also uh, a very big deal as well. Sure. Um, it's just a more superior form of money. Nobody can stop Bitcoin. You don't have a, a single group that's in control of it that can make decisions uh, and, and change it and, and censor transactions. Um, Nobody can inflate Bitcoin. There's only 21 million Bitcoins that can never exist. So you don't have this huge problem of that you always have with, with government money eventually. Um, I could keep going on and on. I don't know if you want to stop yeah, you at could. some I mean, point it, or ask me questions. But. Yeah, it sort of brings us, and you've, you've done a, a great explanation, and it sort of brings us to the next question, which is, why is Bitcoin better than fiat money? Like, and I know you've explained sort of what fiat money is, and from my understanding, it's it's a government-backed money that's not really backed by anything tangible. So governments can print uh, as much as they like and essentially do whatever they like with it, subject to, to open markets. But why is Bitcoin better than that? Uh, the interesting thing about fiat money is, first of all, this isn't really a term that we're taught in school, not that much, if at all. I was never taught about what fiat currency No, nor was I. I heard about this when I was doing cases. Like It never came up. I think a judge actually asked what fiat money was and spelt it wrong in a judgment. Oh, wow. It's amazing, isn't it? That we're never really taught about the history of money and what yeah, money yeah. actually is in school. It's, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Okay, so the, the word fiat uh, in Latin means let it be done. Um, value, you know, it, it is by decree. So you're, you know, the word itself is, is basically saying, you know, let it, let it have value because I, I say it has value. Okay, so, you know, you, you can look up the Latin meaning of the word fiat. Uh, it's pretty interesting. But fiat currency is uh, paper money uh, issued by a government that has nothing of value backing it. So a lot of people today don't even know that the money that they're using is not backed by anything. It's not backed by gold. Um, and money used to be backed by gold. So it used to be a promise in your note saying, I, 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 uh... I promised to pay the bearer a certain amount of gold, silver, whatever it was, right? So I guess it's lost that, or at least the trust um, has, the trust in the promise was the value. 100%, yes. So people, people you know, used to use gold as money, but instead of having to carry around gold with you every day and hold your own gold on your own, which it's cumbersome, you would put it in the bank and yeah. the money, you know, the, the bank would give you notes that were redeemable for the gold that you had with them. 
So that's the original point. Fiat currency is literally just the notes with no gold. <laughs> so and it's just the government, the government saying this has value. Exactly. For the sake of it's it. just the government saying this has value. You have to use it. Um, and we can create however much of it as, as we want. We have nothing you know, stopping us like gold, yeah. the scarce measurability of gold, stopping us from creating more of it. Um, so that's fiat money. And, and why is Bitcoin better? Well, Bitcoin is better because it's, <clears throat> unlike fiat money, it is not controlled by a central group of people. Okay. So you have Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, um, president of the ECB. They come out and they make a speech. And just by saying words, they can severely change <laughs> the ac economic well-being of a country. Yeah, uh, or like or like Musk, you know, he's able to say something about Tesla, and all of a sudden people go crazy. So I guess it what you're saying potentially is it removes an individual from being able to control um, money or the value of that money or the movement of that money. Yes, which which is a ridiculous concept if you think about it. To, to me, it it, <laughs> it it is such an outdated concept to think that a small group of people can decide how much money there should be. You know what what the economy should be like for millions of people. It's a very outdated system. Yeah, I mean, I, I've lost a lot of the value in in my bank account just because of inflation the last few weeks, right? I mean, there's there's been things going on in Britain and the pound has lost value. Now I expect it to recover to some extent, but you, I guess what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is Bitcoin against Bitcoin doesn't have that issue. And what's interesting, I think, is a lot of people go, well, the value of Bitcoin has gone down. Against what? against the pound, which is also moving up and down, against itself, it hasn't. And I, I just, it's a, it's a weird concept that people just go, oh, Bitcoin goes down. Well, no, not really. There's only a set amount of them. Just because there are uh, factors at play in the market means that it's gone down. But against what? Against the pound, the dollar, corn, the value of chickens, what? Yeah, that's ultimately the question. I mean, there's that, there's that phrase, one Bitcoin will always equal one Bitcoin, right? But yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting to think because historically, uh, the average lifespan of a fiat currency is about 40 to 50 years. Yeah, They don't last that long. Oh, I, I enjoy you on Twitter, by the way. You post your favorite fiat currency. Can you give an example of some of your favorite fiat currencies that have failed? My favorite ones that have failed? Well, yeah, we, we have a, an ongoing theme at Bitcoin Reserve on our account. We post like old fiat currencies that have just yeah, completely gone to zero. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, there are a lot. You know, there's if anybody listening, if you want to look it up, you can look up the Hank Cruz hyperinflation table and you will see just a huge list of <laughs> currencies that everybody used to use that are not existent anymore. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And, and that's because of inflation, I guess. It's just lost its value. It used to be worth something. Now it's not. People lost confidence in it, right? Yeah, it's just that, you know, if... if, if, if if with the you know current money we have, uh, if there is an ability for someone to control the supply of money and create however much of it they want, and obviously you know obviously somebody will benefit from that, and somebody's going to take advantage of that. So it's just the natural, it's just the natural progression of things that will happen if you have a form of money that gives a certain group that ability. It yeah, just makes I mean, sense, I, you know, somebody is going to take advantage of that. And there's something called the Cantillon effect, which C-A-T, uh, I'm sorry, C-A-N-T-I-L-L-I-O-N, I believe two L's in there. Uh, and the, the Cantillon effect pretty much states that whoever has access to uh, freshly created money first 
benefits the most. Okay. So the, the, the people in society who have access to the newly created su supply of money last are poor people. Okay. Yeah, They're not yeah. the people who are CEOs of huge companies getting bailouts. And, you know, they're poor people who are living paycheck yeah. to paycheck who don't own real assets like real estate and gold and businesses, things that can often go up in value with the rise of inflation. Instead, yeah. the, you know, the, drop, the less right? fortunate in society, up. they have to live. Yeah. They have to live more paycheck to paycheck. They have to pay more for the same goods that they're getting before. So it really harms uh, the poor a lot as well. So I guess it's compared, Bitcoin is compared to gold, right? And you've touched on this, but maybe it's just worth explaining to people why. I know there, was, there were some articles going around like ETH is silver and Bitcoin's gold and whether that's true or not. But I think there is definitely something to Bitcoin being compared to gold. Absolutely. Yeah. Bit, Bitcoin is often referred as uh, digital gold. And some properties of gold, uh, it's, it's very durable. Um, it's recognizable. Uh, it is, you know, obviously scarce, like I mentioned. So the, the, the supply of gold increases by only about one to 2% per year. So extremely scarce commodity. Yeah. Um, and it's got a long historical track as well, which of course Bitcoin doesn't have yet. Uh, Bitcoin's been around for 13 years. It's certainly, you know, it's been around for over a decade. Uh, when the yeah, internet was around for, for 13 years, it didn't fully take off an adoption either. So that makes, that makes complete sense. But I want to move to some other points now, which is sort of, I guess, around sort of the criticisms around Bitcoin. I know the one big thing that everyone talks about is about energy efficiency. I mean, is that a big deal? What are the solutions? What, where does it compare in the real world? Yeah, that's, that's, I would say the most popular concern about Bitcoin is the energy use. Um, so I'll tell you where I'm at right now. I'm on a website called notonmynode.com. And it yeah. is a website that uh, we created at Bitcoin Reserve, which basically debunks the whole notion that Bitcoin is going to boil, boil the oceans and kill us all. Um, you often hear phrases like Bitcoin is using more electricity than the country of Sweden and, and things like yeah, that. Luxembourg, so, Sweden, and yeah, all these countries, they keep getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just read off a few things for some perspective here. Yeah, please. All right. Uh, computer games and Christmas lights consume the same amount of energy as Bitcoin per year. <laughs> um, let's see what else the, all right. So I'll, I'll keep going down here. Um, Bitcoin uses Bitcoin mining helps oil and gas companies reduce their emissions by approximately 63%, <laughs> eliminating their use of flaring. Uh, here, what else? Let me, there's another website I'd, I'd like to pull up as well. What is the name? Yeah, sure. I think that's just the biggest criticism. I think Bitcoin suffers from bad marketing sometimes. So if the message out there is that actually um, it, it, it sort of uses the same amount as energy, as you said, Christmas lights earlier, or something that people can compare it to, then yeah, I, I think the problem doesn't go away, but at least there is something to compare it to, to understand. Um, and given the, the potential output, um, maybe it is, maybe it's worth it. I mean, the next, the, the next sort of point on this is really proof of work and proof of stake, which some people may or may not know about. 
and proof of stake is supposed to be more environmentally friendly. So I wonder whether you could just sort of confirm to people what the difference is and whether or, or not that's true. Yeah, uh, I, I would love to t- talk about the difference between those two things. Before before I do, and that's actually yeah, sure. a point we acknowledge on this website, notamino.com. Yeah, let's do it. Um, just a few more stats on the, the whole environment thing to give people some more context. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, global Bitcoin mining consumes 0.14% of the world's energy production. Okay. <laughs> 0.14% of the world's energy production. Bitcoin mining consumes 0.44% of the world's wasted energy. So it's not like people are hooking a Bitcoin, you know, tons of Bitcoin miners up to their homes and using energy from that grid and just taking it away from everybody else and making it more expensive. Bitcoin miners are incentivized to find the lowest uh, cost for energy, okay? They want to spend the least amount of money on energy possible. So what they do often is they find energy that would have otherwise been wasted and they use that for Bitcoin mining. So some examples are hydroelectric power, um, excess money from solar power. Um, I have friends in Ireland and in Mexico that are taking biogas, okay? So manure from farms and using that, the energy from that to mine Bitcoin. Um, And one of the most interesting cases is you have big companies now like ExxonMobil, which is the largest oil and gas producer in the United States, mining Bitcoin right now as we speak. And why are they mining Bitcoin? Well, the reason is because when they produce oil and gas, they have to do what's called flaring. And flaring is basically, you know, you you have an excess amount of gas that for whatever reason, I'm not an expert on oil and gas, but whatever reason it can't be used and they have to get rid of it somehow. So they basically light it on fire. Uh, You can find pictures of this. I think there's like, you see them in the oil rigs, don't you? Is that what it is where you just see them on fire? And I've always, I always sort of saw those pictures. What on earth are they doing? But that is, I guess that's that's called flaring. That's called flaring. And yeah, I mean, the green crowd, you know, they, they say this produces more emissions and that's harmful. And, you know, it looks ugly. I I can see I'd probably not a great thing to do. Um, So no matter what side of the equation you're on, right. Either way, companies like, Exxon Mobil, instead of flaring, are taking that energy and diverting it to Bitcoin mining machines, to Bitcoin miners. So they have a financial incentive to not produce emissions. Uh, it's pretty well, fascinating it sense, concept. Right? I mean, normally people who are, are supportive of Bitcoin want to find proper solutions. And obviously, one of the one of the real world issues is environmental issues. And I certainly have seen articles where people are using biofuels and excess uh, energy, um, as you've described, which is really positive. But I think uh, maybe those who criticize it for um, being environmentally bad need to do a little bit more research. I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think maybe years ago, it was the case whereby a lot of energy consumption um, you know, it, it, it did take up a lot of energy consumption, sorry, but nowadays people are finding innovative environmental solutions and so they should. Everybody's trying to do that. We're all figuring it out together. We are. I, I think an important point for people to realize is Bitcoin will only consume more energy and that's okay. Okay. Like we, we need to understand that Bitcoin will continue to consume more and more energy and that's okay. Why? The amount of wasted energy is 20 20- times larger, approximately 20 times larger than the amount of energy that the Bitcoin network is currently using. 
Yeah. So just think about that. The amount, I mean, or just the amount of energy getting wasted in the world is 20 times larger than the amount of energy that Bitcoin is currently using. So, uh, yeah, of course we're going to hear this because there are, you know, there are people who have very big uh, interests in having monopoly on money. And if you want to yeah. talk about things that are bad for the environment, you know, it, it takes about five minutes of research to see that that uh, this argument is is really not holding up under logic. Um, and talking about fiat currency, I, you know, the banking system, the current banking system uses more energy than Bitcoin every single year, a lot more energy than Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, yeah, you think you about all about the that. ATMs, all the people, you know, working there, that entire uh, system is is using a lot of energy as well. Well, there's a lot of bad marketing around crypto, right? Because I, as you know, I do a lot of asset recovery work in, in along um, chasing uh, uh, assets along the blockchain and blockchain assets, Bitcoin asset, uh, Bitcoin, whatever they may be, crypto assets uh, get a bad rap. And it's uh, a little unfair that they do. I mean, a, f a friend of mine was was uh, giving a speech the other day and he said, you know, Rolex don't get a bad rap just because if someone walks down the street, they're more likely to get robbed. It's the same sort of thing. It's a it's a marketing thing, and 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 hopefully people will feel more comfortable with this tech and how it all works. So, if we can, it'll be useful, I think, for hopefully listeners to hear a little bit more about proof of work and proof of stake. If you're if you're able to talk about it, and happy to do so. Sure, absolutely. Okay, um, an important thing to keep in mind with Ethereum is uh, they there is what what you call a pre mine. So. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll just read this off of uh, notonmynode.com yeah, sure, because we talked about this exact issue. So uh, it starts off with a quote by Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto is the uh, creator of Bitcoin. Uh, to The name is it's an anonymous name. Nobody actually knows who Satoshi is. But anyways, yeah. he said the nature of Bitcoin is such that once version 0.1 was released, the core design was set in stone for the rest of its lifetime. Okay. So Bitcoin's users, not the founders, miner, miners, or developers are ultimately in control of the protocol. Proof of work will not be removed because it's what guarantees that no one can tamper with Bitcoin. No one can create new tokens without putting in the required work energy. And that's in the interest of the users and proposed alternatives like proof of stake, which Ethereum is implementing large token holders have more power than average users. The founders of Ethereum own the most amount of tokens since they created 70% of them out of thin air. Does that sound familiar? When the project uh, was launched in a so-called pre-mine, that's when they, they got 70% of the supply. The creators of Ethereum owned 70% of the supply. I, people need to realize that. So their huge stake gives them control over the protocol. You need to trust them not to vote in upgrades that hurt your interests as a participant in that ecosystem. Okay, so Ethereum is the complete opposite of Bitcoin in the sense that there is a central group, small group of people controlling what's happening. Um, proof of stake, you know, I'm not gonna act like I'm some expert on proof of stake, but the fact that you have the founding team owning 70% of the supply of this thing, uh, yeah. it, it sounds a lot like, uh, uh, you know, when a stock comes out and, and you have people owning a large share of the stock and they dump on the investors, it's, it's a very similar situation here. And this is, this is exactly why in the legal sense, this is exactly why Jerry Gensler, who's uh, 
I think his title is chairman of the SEC, Security Exchange Commissions in the United States. He is saying for this very reason that, you know, Bitcoin is a commodity and pretty much everything else is an unregistered security for this very reason, because Ethereum is no different from all these other altcoins as well, <clears throat> in the sense that the, the founders own a uh, large part of the supply. See, that's the interesting point, right? Because, and, and, and I think I, I can summarize it, maybe you'll correct me, is, is proof of work is someone has to do all the maths and work it out and make sure that everybody's maths is correct. Proof of stake is, is voting is done by whoever owns the most. So you have more rights if you own more stuff. And I'm very happy to be wrong there if anybody says that I've, 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 I've messed that up. But my understanding is, as you say, it, it means that the people with the most amount end up controlling the asset. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to try and I'm going to sort of go through with you sort of the more fun bits of Bitcoin. And I think that's sort of to do with the culture because a lot of people don't understand what the culture is and what it all means. And, you know, I follow you on, on Twitter and there's uh, definitely some, some obvious uh, uh, traits that you have with other Bitcoiners. And, you know, Bitcoiners believe in stuff. And I think we want to share with people what, what that is. So, I mean, if you can sort of describe what Bitcoin, Bitcoin culture is, I mean, holdl is an obvious one, what the laser eyes was, inflation is a secret tax, this sort of wording, like what, is, what does that all mean? It's a really fun question. So, okay, Bitcoin culture. Um, I should start off by saying, ultimately, Bitcoin will not have a culture at all. And the reason why- It's used by everybody. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but for the time being, I mean, Bitcoin was initially- popularized among the cypherpunk group. So basically that, that's a bunch of uh, very technical software developer type people um, who, you know, it, it, like what's called the FOSS, free and open source software. Okay. So yeah. that whole crowd was the first to discover Bitcoin. And then the, you know, libertarian crowd, freedom movement type people uh, found out about Bitcoin and, and also became interested in it because of that. Now, I mean, things are expanding so much that, you know, I, before I even talked about Bitcoin culture, I, I should say that there are so many time, different kinds of people who own Bitcoin. So many different kinds of people who own Bitcoin. The CEO of Apple owns Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, we, we, we're from other sides of the world, different backgrounds. We own some. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not speaking for everybody in this case. I would say like the hardcore group of Bitcoiners that you see on Twitter, <laughs> the people super yeah. passionate about it and, and working in projects with it. Um, I mean, are largely millennials, actually. I mean, I, I would say the average amount, I mean, the average age of a Bitcoiner I see, uh, somebody working in the space, somebody writing articles about it, somebody having a podcast about it, they're between... 22 to 50 years old. They're in that range. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned we believe in something. We, we, we are just tired of, of using a form of money that has caused so many problems. So I'll give an example. I mentioned, uh, you know, Bitcoin res resonates a lot with the millennial generation. Okay. So I'll, I'll give an example about buying a home. So here we go. Take the act. I'm just reading this from a recent yeah, 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 article that I've been writing. Take, take the act of buying a home. Okay. So since 1965, 
average home values have skyrocketed from 170K to 374K. That's a 118% increase in the price of homes since 1965. Meanwhile, medium household income has crept up only 15%, okay, from 59,000 to 69,000 in 2021 inflation adjusted dollars. So basically what you have is since 1965, you now have to work effectively 103% harder to own a home. And yeah. you know, the millennial generation, we, we, we've talked to our grandparents where they talked about gas costing 25 cents a gallon. <laughs> and now you know, where I'm from in California, people are paying six and a half dollars for, for, for gas per gallon. So everything's just become completely unaffordable. And absolutely, about, I suppose, sort of repatriating the power of money back to the individual. It is. It absolutely is because we we are really experiencing the bottom end of what happens when currency begins to die. And uh, and just one more thing on the millennial uh, idea. Uh, Devere Group did a study. I think it was about a year and a half ago, and they found that I believe the exact number was sixty seven percent of millennials prefer Bitcoin over gold, which is. Pretty significant, I think. And if you if you look at the total amount of wealth that millennials are expected to inherit in the next 20 years, approximately. So the next 20 years, the millennial generation is set to inherit between 30 and, and 70 trillion dollars. Okay. So you have a huge yeah. generation of people that have seen their quality of life decrease as a result of fiat currency. You have this generation preferring Bitcoin over gold. And you have them inheriting 30 to $70 trillion over the next 20 years. To me, I, I, I see a huge generational shift of money. Um, I see an industry that uh, was previously seen as taboo that nobody used to talk about now being, you know, th this Bitcoin thing is now owned by a lot of very notable people. Well, I mean, it, it, it has provided real wealth to people in as much as there are people in refugee camps who've been able to use it. I mean, I think it may have been you or, or someone else I was following on Twitter, whereby I think it was a, a small place in Nigeria where people will be able to buy goods. So there is a real world application for people who can't necessarily access bank accounts because they don't have houses, but yet are able to use Bitcoin to trade money or at least use it as a means of exchange. So I, I, I completely get it. There's obviously a lot of different um, uh, uses for Bitcoin, but for people in traditional finance who see like red laser eyes, like, can you describe what that even is? Honestly, I, I have absolutely no idea of the, the <laughs> origins of that meme, but I can tell yeah, you nice. that it's a meme. Um, I mean, the, well, I, I, I can say, yeah, I don't know exactly what the red laser laser eyes, you know, signify, but the meme itself, people started, started putting red laser eyes in their profile pictures. And the whole idea was, you know, laser eyes until hundred K yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was actually the meme. And then we never hit hundred K. Um, so then everyone had, took you know, off a lot everyone. of really notable people with laser eyes. You had Michael Saylor, who's the yeah. CEO of MicroStrategy. Um, you know, that corporation owns billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And the CEO of that, that corporation had laser eyes, which is pretty funny. You know, you had NFL football players with laser eyes and, um, and now people are yeah, just using awesome. it because it's, it's become kind of a internet cultural thing. It's pretty funny. Well, I've, I read the, the red eye, red laser eyes was for Bitcoin. Uh, blue was for ETH and, and 
all sorts. I, I don't know the origins either. I'm, I'm sure people will, will tell us um, after this what the origins are. But I know that people in traditional finance or people who may buy in see this sort of stuff. They don't understand the tech, don't understand the asset. And then they see a load of red laser eyes and are thinking, what the hell is going on? So I guess it's a job for us to... Um, to, to actually uh, sort of educate people and say that it's 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 a legit thing, um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to the the next thing if that's all right. Um, so it's actually a quote from uh, uh, from Hal Finney, and I, I think I sent this to you earlier. I'm gonna read it out, but it says, in 2019, Hal Finney, um, who received the first Bitcoin transaction from Satoshi Nakamoto, um, actually wrote that bit, one Bitcoin would be worth a uh, hundred million dollars. Now, I'm going to read it out, but afterwards, could you tell me whether you think he's right? So he yeah, I think 10 million, right? Blog, I think it was 10 million. Did I say something else? 10 million. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, you so got it. I'm going to read it out. So it was on his blog, 2009. He says, as an amusing thought experiment, imagine that Bitcoin is successful and becomes the dominant payment system throughout the entire world. Then the total value of the currency should be equal to the total value of all the wealth in the world. Current estimates of the total worldwide household wealth that I've found range from $100 trillion to $300 trillion. With 20 million coins, that gives each coin a value of $10 million. Do you think that's right? I think it's logical. I think it's absolutely logical. The total addressable market for, for Bitcoin is absolutely huge. But that's, that goes to say that nothing, I mean, he talks about the total wealth, right? That means that there is no other kind of wealth. So I suppose it sort of, it removes all other wealth apart from Bitcoin. I, I personally don't see that happening, but I think, look, if it gets to 10 million, there's going to be loads of lasers coming out of loads of people's eyes, I think by that point. But I just, it, it, it sort of removes all of the other assets in the world. But I think you're right. Logically, it sort of follows. But I mean, I wonder what he, what he thought previously when uh, Bitcoin was increasing. You know, maybe he thought he was right. Well, as uh, Mark Mark Andreessen says, software is eating the world. It really is. Software is eating the world. Um, I mean, look. If you look at the total addressable market of Bitcoin, what is it? Okay, so you have the bond market. Uh, that's a huge market. You have the well, I'll, I'll back up a bit. What fiat currency does is it forces malinvestments. It forces people to uh, remove the storing of value in that currency and put it in something else. In other words, the dollar is inflating on, on a long time scale. Over the last hundred years, the dollar has lost about 98% of its value. Okay. Yeah. If you can't have that happen, if you want to hang on to your wealth, so what do you do with those dollars? You put them in real estate, you put them in gold, you put them in things that are going to retain their value as inflation goes up. Okay. And that has caused a lot of money to go into investments where they shouldn't be there. They should be in the currency itself. People used to just save money. People used to hand down their children um, you know, money that they own, gold, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, you have the real estate market, you have the bond market, you have the all all of fiat currency that currently exists right now, all money in the world. Um, you have the gold market, which you know the the Winklevoss twins, who they are the uh, those two twins that actually created Facebook. A lot of people don't know this, but when they won the lawsuit against Mark Zuckerberg, they got a bunch of money. They made Gemini, right? I mean, they're the guys who run Gemini. 
They made Gemini. Yeah. But they took all the money that they won from that lawsuit and they put it in Bitcoin. And they wrote <laughs> an article talking about why Bitcoin is going to replace gold uh, as, as far as being a store of value. And that alone is a 10 times increase in price. Their logic is basically, okay, the gold market is about $11 trillion. Um, the Bitcoin market cap is about $1 trillion. So, okay, you know, that's 10 times uh, going up in price. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Bitcoin is superior than gold in, in many ways. It's more portable. Um, yeah. It's verifiably finite. Um, I mean, it's weird, right? Because I, I mean, I don't know whether you own any gold. I don't own any gold. And a friend of mine bought some gold. She bought like a bar of gold. And we all thought that was really weird. Is like, what, what are you doing? Are you burying it in the garden? And she was like, well, you know, it, it's not going to disappear. And I think the idea with gold is, is that it, it, it doesn't react to stuff, right? So, you know, if you have some of the other elements, they react with oxygen, but gold doesn't. But it just seemed really weird to me that someone had just bought like some bars of gold and they stuck it in their basement. But I'm happy to sit here and say that I own Bitcoin. You can do the same. I mean, do you own any gold? I used to own gold. Yeah, I used to own gold before I owned uh, Bitcoin. And I, well, I, like I don't boss? blame her for owning gold because she understands a big problem that a lot of people don't understand in society, which is, you know, the money is is worthless pretty much. <laughs> I'm going to tell her that. I'm going to tell her you said that. I'm going to tell her that she's really smart. Yeah, feel free. She understands a big problem that's happening. But uh, I mean, yeah, she's going to have some problems, right? Like storing it, that's a big issue. Somebody breaks yeah. in your house or something like that. They're like, where are you going to mm-hmm. put your gold? You're going to put it in a safe in your house that that's, you know, or you're going to bury it in your backyard. What happens when you need to move the gold around? Are you just going to drive with all that gold in your car and hope nothing happens? Or how are you going to send it to somebody in China or somebody in Europe or somebody in a different country than you, you know, in Europe? You, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that, I mean, that's why it's a new gold. It, 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 it sort of has its value and it's, it's a permanent store. And it's, the benefit is that it's portable. I guess that's the fundamental thing, right? Um, the other question I wanted to ask you was, I mean, as far as I'm aware, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Bitcoin was supposed to be peer-to-peer, right? That was the way that we were supposed to transact. And yet we've got major, huge third parties and intermediaries playing. Uh, they, they, sorry, they have a role to play in Bitcoin in terms of transactions. Do you think personally Bitcoin has lost its way because we have these third-party intermediaries? Which ones are you referring to? Well, I mean, you just look at, you know, the, the big ones. You look at Binance, all of a sudden people are able to trade Bitcoin through it. I mean, uh, Coinbase or Gemini or, or OKEx or whoever. I mean, I thought the whole point really, if you boil it down, is that you and I can, can trade. I mean, it, it, it has the fundamental... Uh, a peer-to-peer dynamic with Bitcoin failed because those intermediaries now exist. Uh, no, so those, so Binance uh, companies like Binance, those are exchanges. They they are companies that sell you Bitcoin in return for fiat currency. So I want to buy, you know, if you want to buy ten thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin, then you go to Binance and you you know send them money, or you go to Bitcoin Reserve and you send us the ten thousand bucks, and then we give you the Bitcoin. Um, those are companies, they, they, <clears throat> they are not Bitcoin themselves, right? They're just, they're just using Bitcoin, but they are companies. Um, and that's, that's a temporary uh, service that we're going to have to have right now while the world is accumulating Bitcoin. However, just you and I, me and you, I could send you however much Bitcoin you know, I want and it, it can go directly to you with abs- absolutely nobody in between us. 
uh, still today, right now. So these companies, you know, they, they help you acquire Bitcoin, but of course, you're going to have to have a company do that. But actually using Bitcoin, saving in it, you know, holding it yourself, sending it to people, there's nobody that needs to be in between us. Well, that's it. Because like, I mean, when I tried to get into this, I was like, where do I go and buy this stuff? And because the market was, I'm not going to say new, but it was certainly, uh, you know, as it still is to some extent in its infancy, you just go on Google, you, tr you speak to friends and you go to an exchange and you know what, it looks legit and you go for it. And all of a sudden you own Bitcoin. I don't have to go to find some guy in a marketplace online who I've never met and, you know, part with my fiat. I mean, that's scary, right? So if I can deal with a company, that feels a lot better. But, you know, as far as I'm aware, when you transact with these exchanges, you're not really buying Bitcoin. You're buying a, a, an entry in a ledger that says that they owe you, which again goes to the sort of fundamental issues around fiat currency by government. So I think one of the questions I actually forgot to ask you, which I think is, is sort of fundamental is, what is self-custody and why is it important? And I know that you'd written an article about this and I encourage everyone to, 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 to look at it. I think it was dated 14th September, 2022 called Why You Must self uh, custody your Bitcoin. Like, why is that so important for people who don't understand? Yeah, that is a great question. So, okay, so let's let's take a look at gold. Uh, big difference between Bitcoin and gold is gold naturally has the tendency to be centralized in its ownership. Okay, the reason why is because, like we've discussed before in this in this discussion, generally people don't want to hold their own gold. They don't want to bury it in the backyard. They don't want to put it in the safe. They don't want to have to deal with that because it's a liability. So they give it to the bank and they also don't want to carry it around. It's, it's not a very easy form of money to, to carry around yeah. with you. So, you know, naturally you're going to put it in a bank, the bank holds it for you and the bank gives you uh, those notes of credit, uh, you know, which we know as, as uh, paper money um, to use instead. Uh, with Bitcoin, well, I, I should also say in that regard with gold, the problem with this is now you have to trust the bank to not be bad, <laughs> okay? That's basically what you have to do is just trust the people in the bank to be good yeah. people. And unfortunately, that's not the way the world works uh, sometimes. So I have some examples. I'll just read off a little bit from this article. Yeah, please. Yeah, so in, yeah, so in the United States, uh, bid instance is, is called Executive Order 6102. And basically, I'll just read it off. In the United States, most Americans trusted banks to hold their gold for them. Yet in 1933, President FDR signed an executive order which quite literally seized all citizens' gold. And what were they left with? Pieces of paper, US dollars, that were supposedly backed by the gold. This is ironic because the original point of those pieces of paper was to be notes that people could conveniently carry around instead of having to lug gold everywhere. And they were originally intended to be redeemable for gold. Uh, obviously, it wasn't the paper that was valuable since paper can be printed endlessly. It was the gold that was valuable since gold can't be created out of thin air, which makes it scarce. Uh, an important thing to add is that Americans didn't simply walk up to the government and hand over their gold when this was passed. They kept it with the banks, which obeyed the orders of the government and mandated confiscation. This happened right. in the free world. Do you think this sort of event could not happen again with your Bitcoin? The advantage of Bitcoin is the fact that it is much easier to store than gold is. You don't need a vault in your house. You don't need to use a vault in the bank. You don't need to bury it in your backyard. All you have to do is simply protect 24 words. That's it. Um, 
So that's 1933, U.S. government confiscates gold. You can go uh, more recent as well. In 2013, in Cyprus, you had what was called the bail-ins. And, you know, this is not a, a third world country. This is a modern European nation. And people lost half their money in the bank. Okay, so... I guess it's about, right, saying that you own your assets and if anything goes wrong with an exchange or with, in this case, a bank when you're using fiat money, it's about making sure that if that third party, that bank, fails for whatever reason, you own that money and no one can take it away from you. That's what it boils down to. And I suppose what you're saying is, is there are examples the world over where those institutions have failed and people have lost out. Yes. T tons of situations like this have happened in history where, you know, people, for whatever reason, uh, are losing their money in the bank or getting censored. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I mean, I definitely need to learn, and especially from you, about um, self-custody because I know your company uh, definitely makes all of that easier. And I want to turn to to sort of talk about Bitcoin Reserve a little bit. So just tell me a little bit about it and, and how you got there. Uh, so we are a uh, Bitcoin brokerage serving people internationally. Uh, we focus on Europe. We've got, you know, focus on a ton of regions. Unfortunately, we don't serve the United States or Canada, but uh, most major countries outside of that, we can help people buy and sell Bitcoin. Um, yeah, a big effort of ours is also education. So we've got a podcast of our own uh, where we talk about Bitcoin, teach about it. We uh, have a, a book that you mentioned that we offer people. We have articles on it. And really our whole goal is to just help the world <clears throat> transition away from fiat currency and into Bitcoin. So no matter who that is, that should be a family office that wants to buy a lot of Bitcoin and, and uh um, you know, diversify, maybe even one, two percent, uh, just have some Bitcoin Could be a high net worth yeah. individual that wants to buy it. It could be, you know, a retail investor as well, somebody that wants to buy a thousand bucks in Bitcoin, something like that. Um, so that's what we do. And I, I am aware of many hats, I say. So I, I write articles, I run the podcast, I talk with awesome people like yourself, um, do a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I love it. I wouldn't yeah. want to be doing anything else. You know, loads of people, uh, including um, a Bitcoin magazine, certainly helped me get published there, which was awesome. Um, one thing I, I sort of want to make clear to everybody, or at least allow you to, is is why they would use you. Because I've had uh, contacts of mine say, look, I've got a, a high net worth and they really want to buy Bitcoin, but they just don't know how. And, you know, they want to go to an exchange and they, they're a bit nervous about it. Like, why would or why should people come to you? And like, what? You, you, you hold their keys for, well, it's, sorry, it's about self-custody, right? So that you allow people to, to uh, hold their, their, their keys. Um, you don't do that as a party. Like, is it that sort of stuff that sets you apart? I mean, what is it, what is it that you offer? Yeah. So when, when we first started a big problem that we saw is, you know, people are very scared when first getting involved in Bitcoin, a lot of people, it's a very confusing thing. <laughs> Um, especially if, if you want to hold your own private keys, it's, it's very daunting and people need to go and have somebody helping them out with that. Somebody there to answer questions. Um, people need help with that. So, you know, a big difference you could say with, with Bitcoin reserve and the way we operate is we really want to make sure that people feel comfortable using Bitcoin holding it on their own. Uh, we also, unlike uh, Kraken and Binance and big exchanges like this, we do not hold your Bitcoin. 
We want you right. to use Bitcoin the way it was originally intended. And if we were to hold people's Bitcoin, then that would make us a de facto bank. And that defeats the purpose of even owning it. <laughs> so so it's, about, it's about allowing people to buy Bitcoin from you and then allowing them to walk away with it. Exactly. You don't want to be holding it. Like, let, let us help you buy it and then off you go. Go and enjoy your Bitcoin. Exactly. Yes. That's the way it do should you, be. Do you, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, do people have an option to store it um, themselves online or do you, do you sort of uh, help people uh, store it all on a USB? I mean, do you, do you have these options? For high net worth individuals and family offices for, or maybe a corporation company that wants to have some of their balance sheet in Bitcoin, for larger pur purchases, we have a concierge service where we personally one-on-one -on -one guide them through holding their own keys. Um, and you know they get a real human being that they can speak with and ask about that. Um, and yeah, so I mean, you're gonna have to use a uh, wallet of your own. You could use Green Wallet, which is you know uh, uh, Hot Wallet. You could use you know Hardware Wallet, so that could be Trezor, Cold Card, Ledger, a bunch of different kinds yeah. of wallets. But uh, yeah, you're you're gonna have to use your own wallet um, and hold your own private keys. <laughs> Because otherwise, there's well, really that, no point to to this thing if if you're just trusting a bank or somebody to hold it for you. Well, that's it. I mean, you're you're the only person I've spoken to, and obviously, um, there are people who who sort of want to use your Bitcoin that you're buying because they can do stuff with it. But you're the the first company, at least that I've heard of, who who wants you to go on your merry way once you've you've provided a service. So I think that is exactly how um, Bitcoin was intended. Um, I have one more question. Um, which sort of, to some extent, loops back to where we were at the start, which was, why is Bitcoin better than other assets? I mean, we've got CBDCs coming in. Um, they're, just for people who don't know, they are uh, central bank um, stable coins. Um, and we have NFTs and all these other uh, crypto assets. But Bitcoin seems to be the oldest. And, and, and why will it have value? Why is it better than anything else that's on the market now? good question. First of all, Bitcoin is the best performing asset of the last decade. That's, that's an objective fact, something that has to be acknowledged. It's pretty amazing to think about that. <clears throat> yep. It's been around for 13 years now, and it's the best performing asset of the last decade. And still to this day, we have a lot of financial advisors and uh, family offices and, and you know, people that just don't own it. So that's one thing to be acknowledged. Um, <clears throat> why is it better? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd like to tie this into the CBDC thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so basically, what you have today is you have eighty to ninety percent of central banks, and I believe this is according to the Bank of International Settlements. But eighty to ninety percent of central banks in the world are launching their own CBDC initiatives, central bank digital currency initiatives. So what is a CBDC? A CBDC is a programmable uh, online you know, form of money that is on the blockchain, which is the, you could say, technology that, that uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin has. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll just read off a quote by a man named August, Augustine Carstens, who was a general manager for the Bank of International Settlements. Okay. Uh, here he goes. He says, we don't know who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who's using a thousand peso bill today. 
The key difference with the CBDC is the central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. So basically they're gonna be able to have a lot of control over your money. They're gonna see where every cent is being spent. Um, it, it's like it's like fiat currency on steroids. That's basically what a CBDC is. It's like all the good stuff from Bitcoin, right? It's like using the underlying technology, but having it utterly controlled by a centralized authority. So it's like all the good bits and all the bad bits. And I can imagine there's a lot of people who don't want to know where every single penny or cent goes. They want some sort of privacy. So I guess, are they are they the antithesis to Bitcoin maybe? is is it Are they the opposite? I would say they are the antithesis of, of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, you can look at China right now. China has uh, has this in place, and you know, you scan a QR code, and and you have information. You know, your your medical information linked, your criminal information linked, your family family's criminal history, of all your personal information linked with one QR code. And you know, they, China's already done things like you know, we're going to give you a certain amount of these CBDCs, but you have to spend them by this certain time, or else they're not they're not good anymore. Just weird ways of social engineering people that you can do with these CBDCs. Um, and I I don't want to see it. Um, I don't think it's going to happen in the United States. I, I really don't think it's going to happen in the United States just because CBDCs are so inherently antithetical to American values. Yeah, I think there'll be some protests against it. I think if people saw it work in the way that you've just stated um, in other countries, then they would flatly reject it. But that sort of loops back to our, our original point was that's maybe where Bitcoin comes in because it solves that exact problem. Andrew, really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. You've been uh, a massive star and you've explained some quite complex things in a really easy way. So it's hugely appreciated. Yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, having this discussion. Appreciate it, Matt. Nah, thank you very much. Thanks. This podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice, and you should not seek to rely on it as such. Opinions are the individual's own. This podcast was produced and edited by Joe Hawkins, production support by Jake Key, and music by Luke Caring.